So today, basic introduction to the brain and practices that can heal uh, the brain after experiential traumas and challenging life events. So I'm um, just going to jump right in. Uh, if I can find, yes, here we go. Here is the, so, right above your spinal cord, right at the base of your brain is what's called the brain stem and uh, medulla. It's where all of the nerve fibers going to and from the body uh, arrive at the brain for being parsed out to different areas for processing, especially the thalamus. And your brain stem is what is called your reptilian brain occasionally. Uh, it's referred to that because it really hasn't developed in the last 200 million years. Uh, it pretty much is responsible for the basic survival uh, 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 ongoing uh, events like breathing, digestion, uh, circulation, and it's also the host of some very basic survival instincts. Um, the reptilian brain is notable because uh, besides looking after these very important self-regulating homeostatic processes in the body, but the reptilian brain also has the capability of inducing a what's known as an immobilization state, especially very early on in life when we're overwhelmed with fear or we are in a situation where it seems that death is imminent, the brainstem is uh, cholinergic and it releases a set of choline that essentially uh, induces a death fugue or a death-like state in the body. And the point of this is uh, for animals that would have been trapped in the past, the last-ditch effort to survive an attack would have been to essentially play dead. Human beings still have this capability, and in very, very, very rare events, this version of the freeze state, there are actually two freezes or two forms of immobilization we're capable of, but this freeze state is what people experience when they're in an overwhelming catastrophe, suddenly they're, they're in war and suddenly a bomb goes off, they're attacked by a grizzly bear, where it just seems that there is absolutely no hope of survival. And it's there to not only offer us with little chance we have of surviving an attack, but also it essentially stops all the incoming information to the brain, stops the processing, so it induces a blackout, which is useful because if you are going to die very violently, you don't really want to be in a lot of pain or present while it's happening. So uh, it, it's there, one, to give us a chance of surviving predators by pretending we're dead, but also to cut off all the flow of incoming sensory information so that we don't suffer too much if something drastic happens. Unfortunately, this form of freeze is invariably very dangerous 
because uh, the, the neural sheaths that induce this form of tonic immobilization uh, have no myelin coating, so it can actually induce heart attacks. They can actually induce um, death. Uh, there's a lot of theorizing that sudden infant death syndrome is caused by uh, the, um, the brain stem inducing an immobilized state. So um, if you do ever experience this, uh, it will create a likelihood for the rest of your life that not only the brain stem, but the next upper level of your brain, the mammalian brain, will be easily activated. There was an interesting study that they found that children who grew up in abusive families uh, to be adults were actually twice as likely, or maybe three times as likely, I don't remember the exact amount, um, to experience PTSD as people who haven't. So if you're standing next to someone who grew up in a secure childhood and you grew up in, in a childhood where there was uh, episodic, extremely overwhelming, violent events, and you see a horrible event, in front of you, like a 9-11 type situation perhaps, or a car crash, you'll be more likely to uh, develop PTSD than the person standing next to you. Now, the mammalian brain is what most of us are far more familiar with. It's the fight, flight, or freeze center of the brain. It's the area that controls adrenaline for arousal. It controls the release of dopamine for rewarding us for achieving positive life-affirming um, things like food, shelter, warmth. It also releases cortisol, which is a stressor when we're under attack. So the fight, flight, freeze, and the rewards for accomplishing anything are released by this part of your brain. Uh, it's constantly searching for um, beneficial things, but weighing the risks of also threats out there. Uh, the reptilian brain is always on alert. The mammalian brain is not always on alert. It can swing from high arousal states to no arousal to states where it's rewarding us for... Uh, collecting berries of which squirrels. Uh, if we are nurturing our young, uh, it will reward us with uh, oxytocin. Um, on the other hand, reptiles have absolutely no reward for nurturing. They eat their, ver their own eggs. Yum. Uh, if they... There is no such thing as a good reptilian mother or father, they will eat their children if they can find them. They, are, they have no uh, uh, neuropeptides, neurohormones, neurotransmitters that reward them for caretaking. So they are utterly indifferent to their young. Uh, so the reptilian brain basically is always set at either anxious or nothing at all. Uh, and assumed, assumedly, it's, uh, if it gives permission it's in a state where it doesn't feel death is imminent, then it, it doesn't release choline, acetylcholine, and it will switch the, the, the survival up to the next level, your mammalian brain, 
which will be in charge of, again, fighting, fleeing, uh, doing nothing, acquiring resources like food and shelter or taking care of the young. Now, this part of the brain with the amygdala uh, is, has also its very own, besides fleeing and acquiring, it also has its very own freeze state or immobilization state. But it's different than the immobilization state we talked about for the reptile brain. The reptile brain, when its immobilization state kicks in, you literally go numb. You feel nothing. You're aware of nothing. You are essentially, you look dead to everybody around you. You will go limp. On the other hand, if you are in the mammalian freeze, your body will go very stiff and you will be aware of what's going on, but you will not be able to move. So this is the kind of freeze where somebody wakes up in the middle of the night and they think they hear somebody in their apartment and they can't move, but they're not fainting and immediately blacking out, but they're so terrified that their body is very tense and they can't move, they can't say anything, they can't do anything. It's a hypervigilant immobilization. So you get the difference? One, you're literally blacking out, you're not aware of anything, you're going limp. On the other hand, the second form where you literally can't do anything is you're aware of information, but you just can't move. You can't follow through with the fight or flee. You're literally, you feel trapped, and you feel there's nothing you can do, but you're still awake and you're still getting information in. This form of immobilization and the fleeing, they create later on in life hypervigilance. And they also can create a post-traumatic stress of its own. People who have the first kind of immobilization where they go limp, where their brainstem kicks in, will, will generally have the blackout, dissociative, depersonalized, uh, PTSD, where they, uh, children who grew up in, in families where there's a lot of sex abuse or violence might very well, when they, uh, as an adult, enter into any kind of situation which triggers the early immobilization, they will disappear. They won't be present. They will go into a blackout state. They won't be aware of what's going on. Likewise, Someone who was in this other form of freeze might also go into a lockdown state where they won't be able to act like a rape victim later on in life, not in childhood. But the chances are they won't black out. They'll just be extremely vigilant but unable to move, unable to act on their behalf. And still they will have trouble in the future integrating what they experience because in that state of such overwhelm and such stress where the body tightens, their amygdala is firing so much that it switches off the hippocampus. And so even while they're aware and conscious, they're not forming narrative memories. They're forming other kinds of memories called implicit memories. So very often people who have experiences with sex abuse or violence, but don't black out through the first kind of immobilization. They experience a second kind of PTSD where 
there are memories, but the memories come up as flashful memories. Sudden, overwhelming, non-narrative, non-connected by any story, just images that are overwhelming. Very often, soldiers who come back from wars because they're under chronic stress, and when something really overwhelming happens, they won't go into the first kind of immobilization. They'll go into the second kind where they will be literally frozen in place in horror, but still taking in the information. And when they come back, they have what's called flashbacks. The first kind of immobilization is where you're attacked by a bear, you go limp, you probably won't have any flashbacks because you're not literally getting the information to create the memories. But the second time, you will have flashback memories. The other two kind of fight or flight, those are healthier responses. If you manage to fight or flee a terrifying situation, the chances are excellent you will not have post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD is almost invariably associated with freeze not with people who manage to fight back or flee. Sometimes in fleeing there can be some people who were present at 9-11 and did manage to run for their lives also wound up with PTSD. So it is possible, but the likelihood is significantly less than if you have freeze. Any form of immobilization uh, leads to a very great likelihood of PTSD, which is invariably very, very uh, disruptive. It leads to chronic self-numbing later on in life, un a sense of lack of reality, uh, a kind of tendency to have poor integration, poor self-narrative, a poorly integrated sense of self. It tends to lead to nervous breakdowns, panic attacks later on. It tends to have, uh, and of course, if you have any immobilization trauma early on in life, your chances of experiencing it again are far higher than if you didn't have any early on. So the third brain, we've so far covered the reptilian and the mammalian. The third brain is the primate brain. That's the frontal cortex. 80% of your brain capable of uh, both consciousness on the left with language, narration, and rational thought, and on the right, your right hemisphere is processing how you are situated in the social whole, how many, how securely connected you are to other people, your emotional expectations of other people, your emotional responses, and other uh, forms of language comprehension, comprehension that are not denotative, but more metaphoric or, or poetic in nature. Um, your ability to emotionally connect with other people is due to your right hemisphere. Your ability to talk to other people and convey information is due to your left hemisphere. The brilliance of the, the frontal lobe is that it provides human beings with an entirely modern form of emotion regulation and support after a terrifying event. Human beings have an, their own set of nerve fibers that will use facial expressions and tone of voice and body language to seek connection with other people after we've experienced a disruption 
a uh, a, uh, a terrifying event, uh, uh, any kind of attack, any kind of loss of security, we're set up to uh, reach out to other people and express what's happened, not just through language, which does relatively little emotion regulation, but to connect and convey our emotional states through our tone of voice, our facial expression, our body language, our gestures, how we hold our bodies. All that, that part is being done unconsciously by the right hemisphere. So let's review a little. Your um, reptilian brain, its primary way of survival is tonic immobilization. You go limp, you play dead, uh, it's dangerous, it leads to future blackouts. It also sets your mammalian brain to be far more likely to be overactive and your amygdala to be overactive. So you'll be more likely to be in fight, flight, freeze in the mammalian brain as well. Any activation of this is really dangerous. There is no such thing as good tonic immobilization. Not that you came in here thinking, oh, maybe today Josh will tell me about positive tonic immobilization, but <laughs> there isn't. On the other hand, you can activate the fight, flight, or freeze sometimes without there being any bad news. If you play, you know, heavy-duty sports, or you're, you're a rock climber, or you like to watch horror movies, I enjoy them, uh, you're activating your fight flight, you're activating your amygdala, you're activating uh, stressors, you're activating uh, dopamine reward, you're activating cortisol, you're activating acetylcholine. So you're activating the sympathetic nervous system, but little periods of activation are actually perfectly healthy. Chronic activation due to working in a job where there's a lot of stress or constant demands, feeling that you're constantly up against financial overwhelm. People who are homeless, people who don't have the very requisites of survival, these are people who live with their mammalian brains constantly activated. And the bad news is, is that those people tend to struggle to connect with other people because connecting requires the primate brain, the frontal lobe, and if you're constantly activating your mammalian brain, you won't be able to use facial expressions. You'll be constantly in, in stress. Your body will be tight. Your limbs will be tight. You're, you'll be looking down. You'll be in survival armored mode. So <coughs> chronic stress also releases constant cortisol, which reduces which actually completely screws with your immune system. When you release cortisol, when you're under a lot of stress, you don't produce white blood cells at all. All you're doing is producing red blood cells because your body thinks you're about to be in a fight or about to be attacked. So they've done studies of people who, go, who work in very stressful jobs and also homeless people, and they find chronic reductions of white blood cells and far too much red blood cells, which in and of itself can lead to all kinds of opportunistic immune disorders and so forth. Not only that, but premature aging, Alzheimer's disease, diabetes. So chronic stress is nothing to play around with. It also interferes with your ability to form 
lasting memories because the more you activate your amygdala, the less you're activating your hippocampus, which is going to make it more difficult to you to uh, form reliable memories out of which to build a realistic life story and sense of self. Bad news again if you're chronically under stress. Using your primate brain all the time, expressing your emotions, reaching out to people, crying in front of them, laughing, showing grief, showing despair, is absolutely healthy, completely healthy, especially learning how to... It's easy for most of us to express positive emotions, to smile, to look upbeat. Most of us struggle because uh, we get... Uh, socializing messages that it's in some way bad or it's skillful to express sadness, fear, depression, despair, loss, confusion, boredom, loneliness. All of those are perfectly healthy states. And the more you can express them, the more confidence you'll have when you are under stress to instead of reverting back to your mammalian brain and reverting to fight, flight, self-soothing, like eating, binging on food, which will release dopamine, or uh, isolating uh, due to too much cortisol, the more you reach out, connect, express emotions to others, disclose what you're feeling, the more you will rely on that to survive difficult times, and the healthier you will be. You'll be more capable of integrating your your experience. You'll be more capable of... uh, protecting yourself in ways that have absolutely no downside. There's no physical bad effect to being emotional around friends, to, to connecting in vulnerable, disclosing ways. Moving on to the tools that you can do to make it more likely that you can move up the evolutionary chain and use the higher survival mechanisms of your brain that are healthier and will allow you to connect better with other people. The first is, of course, the reptile brain, because the, its most prevalent form of survival is tonic immobilization, which leads to uh, shutting down, is actually those of us who've had PTSD very early on, or PTSD stemming from events very early on, or who've had extreme... Uh, been through extremely overwhelming, threatening, life-endangering experiences and have a tendency to experience blackouts, uh, inability to stay present and under stress, who experience depersonalization, uh, tools that work very well. Anything that repetitively moves the body, rocking in a chair while you, while you meditate, Um, biking, swimming, floating, walking. Uh, If you do meditate, deep, full in-breaths that oxygenate and open up the chest. We're trying not to deactivate the body too much. We're trying to, when we meditate, involve the body, so big, full, engaging breaths. We're trying to overcome the the literal, the blacking out. Very skillful when working with people with this kind of PTSD is to ground them in the body. Actually ask them to describe the feelings in their feet, their legs, contact with the ground, 
hearing the sounds around them, anything that situates people, connects them with sensations, anything that moves the body in a repetitive way, very, very skillful. Uh, but I would definitely recommend uh, before you do this, knowing that, uh, that this is uh, necessary. The second is the mammalian uh, exercise for the mammalian brain, which is, one, to do the exact opposite. We don't want to energize or do repetitive movement, movements. We want to relax the body and the limbs. So, because the first form of immobilization was shutting down, we want to breathe, we want to create connections <coughs> with sensations. But with people who have uh, hypervigilance, tense, anxious, uh, fight or flight, tend to be very reactive, we want to take long out-breaths we want to focus on uh, deactivating imagery, bringing to mind places that feel very safe, uh, people that make us feel safe, holding their images in our mind. In meditation, relaxing the outer limbs where blood is sent to when we're under fight or flight, which means uh, relaxing the upper arms, the thighs, and the shins, softening the belly, relaxing especially the shoulders. That's why I tend to um, do all of those muscle relaxing at the beginning because most human beings I work with have some form of uh, midbrain hyperactivation. So, if you believe you've had the first kind of trauma, I would not recommend going on long-term silent retreats because there's still a chance that you will be reactivated. On the other hand, if you go to a long-term summit retreat, it's very healthy if you have hypertension, if you have a tendency to be reactive, hypervigilant, if you have a tendency to have the second form of freeze well, where you're very aware but can't move. In retreats and in meditation practice, inside practices where you're creating a safe container is very, very, very healthy, very, very effective. Finally, uh, for those of us who don't feel activated by either of those forms of uh, stress uh, and uh, traumatic um, experiences, uh, generally to, in, to cultivate use of the primate brain and emotional connection with other people. I recommend the Buddha's uh, skillful recollections, uh, two of which are called Deva Nusati and Sila Nusati, which is in your meditation, besides using uh, breath and awareness of sounds or, or metaphrases, also take time to bring to mind people that you feel emotionally connected to that you feel care about you, that you care about. Bring to mind positive skills that you've developed that help other people. Anything that makes you feel more connected with other people will encourage you to use the highest form of your, uh, your essentially survival mechanisms, which is the dorsal vagal, your face, emotionally connecting with other people, expressing how you feel. So I thank you for listening.